passage we're going to be studying this morning is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. And we will begin at verse 8 for the full context. And I'm sure you've heard that word before. We will begin at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head and ruler over all authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together in him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers, he had made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. continuing this morning in Colossians chapter 2, the second part of Jesus is all we need. But I feel that I need to begin this morning with some clarification, lest there be some misunderstanding. In saying that Jesus is all we need, I am saying this in the context of Colossians chapter 2, where the false teachers are saying, yes, we need Jesus, but we also need these other things that, and we'll see some of these as we go through our passage this morning. Either we need these things either for our salvation or, or for the fullness of our relationship with God, uh, our sanctification, we, we call that. And in that context, to that teaching, Paul says, no, we don't need all those other things. All we need is Jesus. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't want this to be heard as part of that radical, individualistic kind of Christianity that says, I don't need anyone else. I'm just going to do my own thing. It's just me and Jesus. That's not what I'm saying when I'm saying Jesus is all we need. Scripture is clear. Scripture is clear. We need one another for, uh, for encouragement and strength. We need the body of Christ. We need the church to grow to full maturity. 
We need pastors and teachers and shepherds. We need accountability. We need the prayers of one another. Well, how can I say then that Jesus is all we need? What Paul is saying in this passage is that Jesus is all we need in that he is the complete provision for our salvation, the complete provision for our sanctification or living a godly and righteous and Christ-like life. In Jesus, there is all we need to be saved and live a godly life. We need one another. We need the church. We need worship to push us closer to Jesus. And our goal should always be to draw closer to Jesus. All we need for our salvation and to live a godly life has been provided in Jesus. But we need the church, we need one another to encourage us toward Jesus. Well, so with that said, and hopefully maybe clarifying, lest there be that misunderstanding, let's continue with our passage today. Jesus is all we need, and begin by reviewing what we saw last week. Paul began by warning his readers of false teachers. Don't let them captivate your minds and hearts through their philosophies and useless deceptions. And then he gives the reasons why. Because Jesus is fully God. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We have been made complete in him. Jesus has authority over all spiritual powers. We've experienced a spiritual circumcision in which the power of our sinful nature has been broken and we have died with him and been raised to a new kind of resurrection life. These are the provisions in Jesus for us. And Paul continues to set forth those provisions in our passage today. So his list continues, and that's what we do. We're picking up that list of the provisions in Jesus for us, the sufficiency of Jesus. Let's begin in verse 13. In Jesus we are made alive. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, let's pause there. Here Paul is describing our condition prior to coming to Jesus. And he says two things. First, we were dead in our transgressions. We were spiritually dead. That means to be without any spiritual life. Totally separated from God and the life that is in God. And this was so because of our transgressions. You were dead in your, or because of, your transgressions. Our sin had separated us us from God. And that's the essence of spiritual death. Separation from God. The second thing he says about our condition Prior to, coming, prior to coming to Jesus, is that you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And this simply further explains dead in our transgressions. And Paul is simply using the imagery of circumcision again, 
We, we saw that last week in our passage. Well, he's using that imagery again here to make the point that they and we were outside of the covenant of God before coming to Jesus and therefore had no relationship to God. It goes back to that idea of Paul that in his mind there were two kinds of people, those who had been circumcised, they were part of the covenant relationship with God and everyone else who was not. And Paul says, before Christ, we were outside of that covenant relationship. The point is that we were that before coming to Jesus, we were spiritually dead and separated from God. And when that was true, when we were dead and separated, now we continue in verse 13, when that was true, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made you alive together with him. This is the gift of eternal life. We who were spiritually dead and separated from God have been made alive and given spiritual life. And if death is separation from God, then life means relationship with God and fellowship with God. We who were without life, void of any spiritual life, have now been given spiritual life, eternal life. Remember the words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, he, he, he who believes in me shall live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is what Jesus has done. We were dead, but we are now alive. We've been given life. You know, we're so accustomed to this. This is not what we're talking about here. It's not a new truth for certainly most of us here today. I wish there was some way to illustrate the significance of this. So let me try. Think of a person on death row in solitary confinement waiting execution which has been decreed but not simply not knowing when that execution is going to take place. But they're in solitary confinement waiting for the execution. You've heard of the expression, dead man walking. Okay. But then the governor intervenes and grants a pardon, and that person is freed. That person goes from a situation of being in death and, and, and separation from any kind of life to being able to be freed and to experience life and no longer fears the execution. We were that person. We were that, those dead men, that dead person walking. But now, fully alive and free, we have life in Jesus in Him alone. He made us alive. He is all we need. 
Secondly, we move on and we see that in Jesus we have complete forgiveness of our sins. We read in verse this, the, the end of verse 13, actually, having forgiven us all our transgressions. This is the basis upon which we were given life. Notice the form of the verb here. He made us alive together with him, having forgiven our sin. Once he forgave us, then he made us alive. Again, this is truth that is, you know, very familiar to all of us here. But let's, let's pause here for a second. What is, for, what, what is forgiveness? What does it mean to forgive? Well, the word used here is kind of interesting. <clears throat> the word here, having forgiven, is a verb, okay? It's the verb form of the noun for grace. The noun for grace is charis. The verb form here, the verb is charizomai. Same root idea, just the noun turned into a grace, and so we could turn into a verb, rather. And so we can say, he graced us. He graced us. He has shown us grace. But once again, we've got, we got to go further than that. We talk about forgiveness all the time. <clears throat> but what does it mean? Well, I kind of look at it this way. There's probably a lot of different definitions we could use, but let's look at it in this light. We might define it as a withholding of judgment. Forgiveness is a withholding of judgment. It's a withdrawal of a sentence of judgment. Excuse me. It's a withdrawal of a sentence of judgment. It envisions a situation where an individual has violated a code of behavior, whether it be the rules of a school uh, or, or a corporation or a relationship or God's moral code. But the individual has violated the code of behavior, and because of that violation, some kind of consequence is in order, some kind of punishment is due. And forgiveness is the withdrawing of that consequence, of that punishment. Forgiveness is the withdrawing of the carrying out of that punishment. Okay, let's bring this a little closer to home. In relationships, think in terms of relationships, whether it be spouse or family or friends or whatever. In relationships, when we forgive someone, I like to say it this way, when we're forgiving someone, We are releasing our grip on making that person pay for what they did. 
We're no longer making them pay for what they did. We're, not, we're no longer trying to get back at them for what they did. We ourselves absorb the pain of the offense. We absorb it, and we don't make them pay. Well, <clears throat> it's a little bit different with God. God can't overlook our transgressions and the punishment that is necessary because of that, because of his perfect holiness and justice. He can't he just can't overlook it. To do so would be a denial of his justice and his holiness. So how can God grace us to not punish us without violating his own attributes or his own character? This brings us to the next verse. How did our forgiveness happen? How could a holy God forgive all the nasty and terrible things that we have done? He can't just look the other way. As I said, it would be a compromise of his holiness and justice. So Paul now employs very illustrative imagery to show just how our forgiveness from God happens. Verse 14, we're going to read the verse first. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All right, let's take this apart. This, this verse is so huge, so important. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What is that, this certificate of debt? This envisions a document that contains a list of all of our sins. How about that? It's a debt because we owe God in that we have violated his law. The decrees, a, a certificate of debt consisting of decrees, the decrees are the records of our sin and the punishment that is due because of our sins. Can you imagine how long this document is? And Paul adds that this document listing our sins is against us and hostile to us. This is a way of saying that... <laughs> God has an airtight case against us, and there's no room for a plea deal here. <laughs> we are guilty of the charges on the document. So what happens? We read at the first part of verse 14, God canceled the document. He nullified it. Paul says he has taken it out of the way. The charges against us have been dropped. The document that lists our sins and demands our death has been taken away from us. How did this happen? The very end of the verse, having nailed it to the cross. 
The imagery here is so vivid. You'll remember this from the crucifixion of Jesus. When an individual was crucified, they would often nail to the cross the charges against him so the public would know why that individual is being crucified. With Jesus, remember, they wrote out Jesus, the King of the Jews, and nailed it to the cross above his head. Now Paul is using that imagery and says, the document of our sins and the decreed death for our sins was nailed to his cross. Meaning that Jesus was dying for our sins. It's our sins that was nailed there in that document. And he was dying for our sins. The lists of all of our sins, of all of our sins, all together and all of our sins, as long as the list may be. God's justice was satisfied because Jesus bore the penalty for those violations, for the, for the penalty of our sins. And now God is free to forgive us because the penalty for those transgressions have been paid. We sang earlier, now hear it again, in light of this, my sin. And then the writer just pauses, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, how can this be? My sin, not in part, but the whole, the entire list was, was there, is nailed to his cross. And because it's nailed to his cross, and he died for it, we bear it no more. How can we not say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Hallelujah. Wow. Jesus is all we need for the forgiveness of our sins. Been nailed to his cross. Hallelujah. Well, Paul's not done. In Jesus, we are made alive. In Jesus, we have complete forgiveness for our sins. And not only that, but in Jesus we are safe from the evil one. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Paul changes the imagery. He does that a lot. I mean, he'll go from one image to the next, you know. And he changes the imagery here to that of a conquering general. When a Roman general and his army defeated another army in battle. They would have the triumph parade in which the defeated army would be paraded through the city of Rome in shame and humiliation, showing that they've been completely defeated. That's the imagery that Paul is now using here in verse 15. Jesus in his death disarmed rulers and authorities. The word disarm means to put off completely or to strip completely, undress completely, and thus render powerless. He has stripped them, 
disarmed the rulers and authority. He has stripped them of their power and the absolute hold of Satan over humankind by canceling our sin and breaking the power of death through his resurrection. You see, the two areas of Satan's power, sin and death. Jesus dealt with sin on the cross by nailing it to his cross. He dealt with death in his resurrection by breaking the power over death when he arose. And so he has broken Satan's power. And then using this imagery here of this conquering general defeating that army, he said Jesus made a public display of them. And this speaks of absolute, total defeat. They're no longer fighting. They've been conquered, and they're put on display. And he triumphed over them through him. The idea here is that Jesus leads them in a triumphal procession. Just as the general led his defeated foes in shame and defeat through the city for the emperor. Now remember, this is imagery. Just as a general defeats his opposing army and disarms them and subjects them to shame as they are led bound and shackled in a triumphant procession. To this degree, Jesus has defeated Satan and his army. Thoroughly defeated them. But wait a minute. Satan and his demons are still there and working his evil purposes. I mean, what gives? Well, Paul, in writing this about the complete defeat and humiliation of Satan and his host, he knows that Satan is still active. He warns us in Ephesians 6, we wrestle against rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We wrestle against those now. And Peter says that that Satan walks around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy us. So in what sense then can Paul say that Satan was defeated at the cross? In this way, his authority over the believer in Jesus has been broken. He no longer has complete reign and authority. He can lure us. He can harass us. He can tempt us. But he doesn't have authority over us in Jesus. Martin Luther put it this way in his famous and well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He recognized this truth. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, yeah, they're still there. They're all around us. But we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little world, one little word shall fell him. We are secure and safe from any continued attacks in Jesus. Well, this is the end of his list, of Paul's list on the sufficiency of Jesus. 
he now applies that sufficiency. Verses 16 and 17. First thing he says is don't be in bondage to artificial regulation. Let me try to explain this. Verse 16 begins with the word, therefore. You see what he's doing now? He's now drawing a conclusion from what he just previously said, not just from verse 13 where we began today, but going all the way back to verse 9. Because Jesus is the fullness of deity. Because we've been made complete in him. Because he has authority over the spirit realm. Because the power over our sin nature has been broken. Because we've been raised to resurrection life. Because we've been made alive. Because we've been completely forgiven. And because we are secure and safe from Satan. Therefore, he says, let no one act as your judge. The false teachers were demanding obedience to their teachings, insisting that this is the way to be closer to God. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You've got to follow all these philosophies and and rituals and such. This is what they were imposing on them. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. All of these have to do with practices, regulations, rituals, whatever, from the law of Moses. And this tells us that these false teachers coming into the church in Colossae were of Jewish origin because they're trying to impose the Jewish law, insisting that it was necessary for believers to keep these practices from the Old Testament law. Food and drink, what does that refer to? Well, that refers to the dietary regulations in the Old Testament, clean and unclean food. You can eat this food, but don't eat that food. Okay, And what about festivals? Well, that's the many feasts prescribed in the Old Testament. You know, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, all those. Okay, They were imposing those on the believers. New moon, well, that's the monthly sacrifice on the first day of the month. The calendars then were regulated by the phases of the moon. And the new, on the new moon, that was the beginning of a new month. And they would have a sacrifice on the first day of the month. And then the Sabbath days talking about the strict observance of the Sabbath laws. Paul is saying to them, you do not need to be in subjection to any of these things. They are not necessary to complete your salvation. They are not necessary to complete your relationship with God. Greg Beale in his commentary says it this way. I I like this. They need nothing else besides Christ and his forgiving work to help them to be closer to God. Nothing else. They don't need anything else. They do not need to obey the extraneous laws in this verse to draw them closer to God. No one should judge them as being incomplete in their spiritual fullness if they do not obey these laws. And then Paul adds this. We have a new fulfillment in Jesus. Verse 17, things in which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Those things of the previous verse, the food regulation, the feasts, the new moons and Sabbaths, he says they were a shadow. They in some way prefigured what was to come later. But the reality, the fulfillment of those is found in Jesus the dietary laws, well, the clean and unclean food. They were designed to keep people clean, uh, to keep people ceremonially pure, to be in fellowship with God. We are made clean and acceptable to God 
in Jesus. We don't need those kinds of dietary regulations of this. Don't, you can't eat this food and be acceptable to God. Festivals, the various festivals, prefigured the work of Christ. Passover, the, the, the slaying of the lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Unleavened bread marks a new beginning, and we have that new beginning in Jesus. First fruits is the first fruit of the harvest, signaling that the, the, the full harvest is about to come. And we're told that Jesus in his resurrection is the first fruit, signaling that a whole host of resurrection is going to follow. All of those feasts have their fulfillment in Jesus. The new moons, the monthly sacrifices are no longer needed because of the once for all sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. And the Sabbaths and the Sabbath regulations, as it was a day of rest, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we now have our spiritual rest in Jesus. Our completeness is in Jesus. So, how does all of this apply to us today? I mean, we're not really offering sacrifices today. I don't think there's anyone insisting that we should uh, begin offering sacrifices again, or we're not really struggling with whether to observe the Sabbath laws or not. We have plenty of dietary laws, but not for religious purposes. Those are just for trying to lose weight. <laughs> but how does, how does all this apply? Well, when Paul says, what Paul says in this passage applies to us today, to the extent that we feel that we must adhere to certain behaviors to either secure our salvation or to make ourselves more acceptable to God or make us a more superior Christian. Sometimes we refer to this as legalism. Legalism is an approach to the Christian life that establishes certain behaviors, often things that are very important, like, you know, daily reading of the Bible, church attendance, tithing, witnessing, those kinds of things, as well as other things in other areas of life, uh, like the, uh, whether or not a person should uh, drink alcohol, what entertainment, what movies should a person watch, even styles of dress and, and clothing and, and such? Is it legalism to adhere to any of these things? I think it is here that a question needs to be asked that I don't think is often asked. We're often quick to condemn legalism. But I want to ask the question, what is the difference between legalism and sincere personal devotion? What's the difference between legalism and sincere personal devotion? For example, let's take a contentious issue sometimes among Christians, drinking alcohol, okay? Is a decision not to drink alcohol, to totally abstain, is that legalism or is that devotion? It depends entirely on the motive and the attitude 
in choosing that behavior. If a person says, I'm not going to drink because a good Christian would never drink, and I'm better, I'm a better Christian than those who do, and God approves of me because I don't. That's legalism. But if the person says, I'm not going to drink because of all of the evils associated with alcohol, and I don't want to promote that, and I don't want my example of drinking to, to encourage anyone else to drink that maybe shouldn't. That's personal devotion. Do you see the difference? One is, what I do leads to gaining merit with God and superiority over others. The other is out of a personal conviction wanting to please God. So it really depends on the mode of an attitude. Legalism involves an attitude and a mindset like, the, like this. Imposing my views on others, that this is the only way, and seeing them as inferior if they don't follow my way, and therefore seeing myself as superior. Legalism is when the behavior itself is the goal. person says, I don't drink. But that person's heart is full of hatred or prejudice. You see, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's legalism. Or, I read my Bible every day because that's what good Christians do. But the person's not reading it to really allow God to speak to them through his word. He's reading it because, you know, it's on his list that that's what he has to do, so he checks it off his list. You see see the difference? The the behavior itself becomes the goal, not the drawing close to Jesus. Legalism is when we do it to gain acceptance rather than than because we are already accepted. Jesus is all we need for our acceptance with God. We are complete in Him. We are completely forgiven and completely accepted in Him. Our behavior does not make us more accepted by God. It does not make us superior. That's legalism. But because we have been accepted, and Jesus is all we need, this acceptance should not be mistaken for license. That therefore, well, I can live the way I want to because I am totally accepted. Because we have been accepted, we should earnestly and passionately desire to live in a godly and righteous way and Christ-like way. And that is not legalism, that passion, that earnest desire to live like Jesus is not legalism. That's devotion. And this is what, this is what Paul's prayer was all about in Colossians chapter 1. Let's go back to that for a second and, and, and remind ourselves of what he said in chapter 1 verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that 
you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This should be our passion, that we would walk worthy of all that Jesus has done for us. Because we are accepted, we want to walk worthy of him. To please him in all respects. It's not legalism to want to please the Lord. Bearing fruit in every good work. We should be seeking to bear fruit in every area of our lives. So Paul's takeaway from this passage is Jesus is all we need. We are complete in him, accepted in him, forgiven in him, secure in him, given life in him, given freedom in him. Therefore, don't be in bondage to that mentality of legalism to make yourself more accepted or make yourself better than others. Because Jesus is all we need. But because he is all we need, therefore, live in, him, live in him, live for him, live through him, live to please him, and live to bear fruit in every good work. Let Jesus and his provisions be preeminent in our lives, in our thoughts, and all that we do. And if we do this, our lives will change. Let's pray. We thank you again, Lord, that you've given us your word that makes clear your will for us and all that you provided for us. But Lord, with our limitations, our limitations of understanding, our limitations because our hearts are hard, we, 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 we can't fully embrace these, Lord, on our own. We need the Spirit of God. So, Lord, we pray once again that the Spirit of God would open our eyes to see, open our hearts to receive all that you would have for us and where it is that you might be speaking to us today, Lord. Encourage us in a greater way to keep our eyes on you, to keep our eyes on Jesus and all that he has done for us. Let us draw close to him. Seek to please him in every way, knowing fully what he has done for us, what he's provided for us, and that we can live for you in him. We ask this in Jesus' name.